Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This is Last Drinks Podcast, a new conversation about how to navigate an awesome life without alcohol, reframing the cultural norms around alcohol in our lives, and hosted by me, Maz Compton, sober since 2015. Yumi Steins is a writer, broadcaster, television presenter, food fanatic, fitness enthusiast, and a mum of four, including two teenage girls. She is woman. The first time I saw Yumi was when she was auditioning for Channel V. If I have it correct in my brain, she made out with Robbie Williams, and I'm pretty sure that's why she got the job. Bold, brave, ballsy. She always has been, and she's totally sober these days. I love that sobriety is the reason that Yumi and I are finally sitting down and having a conversation. She's somebody that I've wanted to talk to at length with for a really long time. So yeah, I'm kind of fangirling a little bit. I think she's incredible and her sobriety story is equally so. Please enjoy Last Drinks with the wonderful Yumi Steins. So Yumi's child, I always call you Yumi child, which is so funny because it's not actually your name. It's just your Instagram handle. It is, yeah. I call people by their Instagram handles all the time. And I have a mental blank when I see them in person. Go, fuck, what's their real name? What's your actual name? So I'm just going to call you Yumi because I don't even know your last name. No, that's I'm joking. <laughs> Can you tell me about, and I'm so excited to unpack this story with you, but tell me about your last drink. My last drink was on January the 4th, the year 2016, I think. And I remember the date because I'd meant to quit drinking on January the 1st. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, which a lot of people do, right? They set the date and it's a good one because you usually hit it pretty hard the night before. And then, sure. So I'd I'd sort of, I'd, I'd gone pretty hard on, on New Year's Eve and then January 4th rolled around and I got invited to this thing and I um, went to it and there was heaps of free drinks and, and I started on the light beers. I thought, you know, I'm, I don't drink anymore, I have light beers. <laughs> and then quickly graduated to the heavy beers and then I realised that there was a lot of kind of really interesting and powerful people at this party but I was past the point of making sense if I talked to any of them. Yes, I know that point very well. Yep. Where you're going to embarrass yourself and you're self-aware enough to know don't go out there, don't put yourself out there because you're going to undermine everything that you've worked towards. So don't talk to anyone. And in the end, I just huddled in a corner with my friend getting quite blitzed and I I left full of regret that A, I'd drunk it all and B, Mm. I'd missed this opportunity to meet and chat with some people that I really admired that were in the room and I'd sort of hidden from them so that I could um, prioritise getting really wasted and I just felt 
um, so ashamed of myself, you know. Wow. And then and then I did that thing also that you do, Maz, where you drink pretty fast and you get picked up or you, you head home and you know it's going to hit you even harder once you've gotten home and, th- and that you need to shut yourself away so nobody gets to see that you because it's really yes. ugly. I used to call that the death sip. So I would get to this point where everything was kind of manageable in a, in a haze and then you would have this critical sip of alcohol that meant now you need to get home mm. because yeah. nobody needs to see this expression of self or self-loathing or whatever. You know what I mean? Mm. So I know I know those feelings and those moments so well. So, okay, so then what changed? So you tried to kind of quit on the first and then what happened on the, the fifth? <laughs> so I think I just understood that, first of all, you can ride, if you get a bad hangover, you can ride that for a couple of days to not drink those couple of days. You know, it's almost working in your favour that you feel so wretched that you don't feel like drinking Um, and that might get you to day three and then you really have to sit with the feeling of cravings and wanting to keep drinking. And I just, a couple of things happened. I gamed it so that I had to, to even contemplate a drink, I had to return to that feeling of shame. I was like, do you really want to have that feeling of shame again? Mm -hmm. Is that really what you want? And also I had a new workplace that seemed really open to hearing about my drinking problem, um, mainly because we were doing a podcast episode on women who drink too much. And I was like, you know what? I actually think this is me. And they were Guilty. like, yeah, yeah. And I and I felt I felt very tentative to go in there and say this is me, but I also felt I had permission. And as part of my research for my work, I went to an AA meeting, and it took a, a huge amount of courage, Maz, to to just go. I am, you know. A, a broken human who needs some help and I am humble enough to put myself in this room full of complete strangers. Yes, you work in the public eye. It feels really risky. It feels like you're putting yeah. your job and your reputation on the line, which I think is probably fair for everyone, whether or not they do work in the public eye. Mm-hmm. But even that one meeting, I just suddenly felt like being accountable is going to really help me. So being open with people and saying, I'm trying to quit drinking it's been a couple of days or it's been two months or whatever, just having some um, accountability felt like I was finally taking it seriously because I realised that part of me had always hesitated to tell people I had a drinking problem because I didn't want them to then see me in a fancy restaurant with a glass of wine and say, hey, didn't you say that you had a drinking problem? And I wanted to be able to have that glass of wine guiltlessly and I realised actually I can never have that glass of wine. And once I accepted that, that that is not part of my future, then I could accept the accountability that I needed. Yeah, it's all the, um, it's the rationalisation that we give ourselves. It's like, I've heard people say things like, oh, you know, people can keep you in a prison with their words. And I'm like, I kept myself in a prison because I was too ashamed to ever admit to anyone that I just didn't really have it all together and you know I'm mad and I'm bubbly and I'm positive and like inside I'm like hate 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 trauma trauma you know and so you you end up drinking to cope with all of these big things that we don't get gifted the tools to deal with Mm -hmm. so then you end end up in this crisis where you're like I don't want to drink anymore but I don't know how to not drink I don't know who I am without it And what it means when you've created an identity, especially women in media, Yumi, it's like it's 
part of who you are. It's how we get our jobs. It's how we do our work is smashing cans and going to parties, you know, back in the Channel V and MTV days. So I want to know from you, what led you to that initial, we're done here. I'm going to, I'm going to have some time away from alcohol. Like, was it, were there some personal circumstances? Was it work crisis? Like what led you to the point of going, I don't want to do this behavior anymore? Mm. I don't know, Maz, like it was a lot of things. I think usually it's more than one thing. Um, mm. But I didn't do the thing where I was slipping up at work terribly. That that didn't really occur and I was quite secretive about it so it wasn't affecting friendships very much. Um, but I think I started to feel um, spiritually that I couldn't keep bruising myself in this way. It's something that I think we don't... Um... Well, I mean, I grew up in a religious household, but I don't think that religion is spiritual half the time. In in my, you know, like now I'm like, oh, what I grew up with doesn't actually echo spirituality. But I find in the Western world, um, like our culture is just not, we just don't have an expression of spirituality. Like it seems still a little bit like new agey and a bit like weird. And then you look at ancient cultures and it's like, it's mm. it's a pillar of health. It's like a defined way to be your best self is to have a spiritual practice of some sort. So I feel like in the West we really start on the back foot because we don't have this really important pillar of health like ingrained in how we do life. And so then we have these conversations after we've quit drinking yeah. where we're like, yes, my spirit man in my soul buggy was being denied so much love and attention. And when we finally get that in check, it feels like things are easier to manage. Like we have a better, like a more grounded way of doing life where we don't have to be inebriated to, to cope with big feelings or complex emotions. Totally. It's such a good way of putting it. And I think, um, I mean, I'm not anti-religion. I am. And I, no, think, no. and I think good religions give you a bit of structure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know a lot of people are, but my, I mean, my experience is my uncles in, in Japan right. who are Buddhist priests and lovely. And I mean, my, my understanding of their, their practice is fairly shallow and I have to say, but, but I do appreciate that religion can give people a structure around which to hang their, totally. their works of good, their ethical works for their communities and their loved ones. And I think that that, for me, has been really meaningful. Yeah, and I think like, you know, when I say religion, I grew up in, you know, like a form of church. And I don't think that church is bad at all. I think church is just a building of community. And I think that's what we need. We're hardwired for connection. That's why AA is such a powerful place because it's people coming together. But when you think about community, like for a lot of us in those rooms, in recovery rooms and 12-step programs, the last time we had community was in a pub you know, around True. around drinks. And so we, so to find True. something that's actually wholesome that doesn't centre around drug taking or drinking, it's actually it's such a mm. revelation to say, oh, I can mingle and do chit-chat yeah. and support others without being a little bit pissy. It's, a, it's an absolute revelation. When I was, you know, dabbling in the sober curiosity thoughts, this was so I stopped drinking on the 1st of, I did a 1st of January as yeah. well. <laughs> Um, 1st of Jan 2015 and so those sort of that last 
six months of 2014, I was really asking myself some pretty big questions. And I remember thinking, I don't know what I will do if I'm not drinking. Like I couldn't actually think of a thing. And so I had this like huge fear going into sobriety of like, I'm going to be so bored. I don't even know. What am I even going to do? Did you have any of those thoughts when you were kind of heading into that, you know, early January piece where you were thinking about not drinking? Not really, because I think I already had four kids at that point. So it was, you're not bored. I'm not bored. I'm quite busy. <laughs> but it was more just like, I mean, one of the things that I always thought about drinking that kind of made me laugh was, you know, when you have your ponytail too tight. Yes. And, it, and you've, like mine right now. you've been wearing it like that all day and then you get home and you take the elastic out and your whole head goes, ah, and it's such yes. a relief. That was the first drink for me was like giving yourself a big salve, a fizzy cold release, you know, and it was so wow. nice. So I didn't know how to relieve myself of stresses and pressures and, and say, you're okay, you're rewarded, you're good, you deserve this. So it was about kind of going, okay, so you're not an evil monster, you work hard, you're loved, what can you do to show appreciation for yourself that's not alcohol, you know? And it's it's a shocker, Baz, because sometimes it's shopping, which is shit, eating, which is, you know, <laughs> not ideal. So there's a, there's a suite of things yes. we turn to that aren't that helpful but they're still better than getting shit-faced. Well, that's, you know, it's the lesser of two evils. Like my sugar cravings went through the (laughs) roof and I started eating so many maxi bonds, but I was like, at least this isn't messing with my brain chemistry, right? And then eventually over time you go, let's do a Sarah Wilson and quit sugar again. And then, you know, (laughs) we're constantly, I don't want to say everyone needs advice because I don't, I don't really truly believe that. But I think in early sobriety, if you can get to the end of the day without a drink, but you've had to have a bowl of ice cream to get there, mm. that's a step in the right direction, totally. you know? Yeah. 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 If you needed a new pair so, of shoes or whatever, some ridiculous. Or 10 <laughs> pairs of shoes, whatever. Um, well, you don't need dancing shoes when you quit <laughs> drinking for a little while because well, for me, I kept going out a little bit, but I'd go home so early. It was hardly worth going out. Cause I was like, this is boring yeah. now. All these people are so boring. I've heard this story before. Yeah. So repetitive. They spit when they talk a lot, you know, yes. it's pretty gross. So when, when you did stop drinking, what were the what were the paradigm shifts? Like what were the big ticket moments that you can reflect on and go, oh, yeah, that that was surprising or that was really cool? You know what? This is pretty like basic bitch stuff. But one thing that I really found incredible, and I sort of want to pat my tummy when I say this, but my my guts settled down. Because, you know, when you drink oh, too much great. and you're often on the toilet and it's, oh, not, yes. <laughs> it's not great. Just to go, it's not a number four. <laughs> Just to go. Oh, I see. That was my body reacting to the alcohol. It's you know, I sh- obviously I should have put one plus one together, but I didn't. That's and what a two it's... is meant to be like. <laughs> and I felt such a relief. I was like, this is actually really how I want to live my life. You know, like I don't want to be sick in that way on a daily basis. So that was one thing. Um, just in, almost immediately that came together. 
um, the energy, yeah. the skin. That's a huge thing, by the way. Like if your if your physical body is not, you know, it's not in homeostasis. It's it's sick, yeah. and so you you're drinking, and your body is saying this isn't working for us yeah you know so that would be a huge relief huge but no one ever talks about it man so I just thought I should mention it as a top line <laughs> oh I'm so down with poo chat I think once you become a mum and you have a lot more children than I do but once you become a mum it's like everything's on the table twos threes whatever <laughs> like don't even care yeah so that was an that was one the other thing that really changed and I guess it's only time that has proved this but I had the commitment, I think the mental commitment and the fortitude to see through long-term projects. And that's huge for somebody who's creative and who wants to give back. Mm. So between the time that I stopped drinking almost like that day to now, I have written seven books, Matt. And before then I had written zero books, zero. That's amazing. Isn't it? it? I love that. It's fucked up because it's basically one per year of sobriety maybe maybe slightly more than one per year but I I always wanted to write a book and I was like I'm too much of a loser I'm I will never write a book I'm just you know a mess I'm a fuck up um and so as soon as I got sober and I could see projects through I understood what it's like to do long-term committed work and, you know, and not go, oh, wow. this is too hard, chuck it, oh, I can't be bothered. Yeah. You've just got so much more time in the day. So from 5 o'clock onwards, I could still keep working. I could still, you know, find little slivers of time among parenting and working yeah. day jobs to sit down at my computer and, and actually write. It was a real eye-opener. I love that for you because you have this, like, tangible timeline of your sobriety. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. That is really cool. And did you find, because I'm a creative person also, and I felt like, I mean, I was always quite creative, but I felt like that first month of sobriety, somebody at some point turned on a light. And I felt like for the first time in my creativity, I was really on. Mm. And I don't know if you felt the same thing, but it was like I was on a new level of creativity that I had never experienced before in my adult life because I had pretty much drunk alcohol every day of my adult life. Yeah, I love that for you. I think that's really a beautiful way of putting it. But I also want to point out that the person that turned on the light somewhere, somehow, that was you. Yes. Wasn't true. it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, like Billy, the man that switches the light on in the fridge, which I tell my child all the time. Did you tell your kids that lie? No, no but I love oh. it. But yeah, I think- because, you know, they ask so many questions. <laughs> Why does the light turn on in the fridge, mum? I'm like, I don't know, because Billy turns it on because he lives in there. Shut up and eat your vegetables. <laughs> now tell me more about Billy. Billy sounds cool. And then there's this whole narrative. <laughs> What's his last name? What car does he drive? <laughs> So good. Yeah, I did find that the creativity definitely got stimulated. And I think that having a bender or, you know, a a bit of a night tends to snuff out that light. And so the light flickers Mm. on and it wants to be there and wants to beam, but but repeatedly it gets stifled. So, So having like extended periods of sobriety, you really see this flourish. And I think it's one of the hard, most heartbreaking things about that common pattern that people have when they're trying to quit alcohol, which is they might be sober for six months or two years and then they think that they've nailed it. They think they've knocked it on the head or they've beaten it 
Yes. And they take a drink and then bang, they're back into their addiction and it's awful because the light, it shows how vulnerable that light is. You snuff it out again and then you you actually believe that the extinguished light version of you is the real you, the loser you, mm. and not that beautiful glowing you is the real you. And it, when you've gone into that relapse phase, it's so heartbreaking because you, you've seen the other side and you want to go there yeah. again, you want to trust it. But this demon of the drink is so powerful at that point. Oh, it just, it breaks my heart when I, when I see that happen for someone and cause I just want to go, just hang in there. It's going to be okay. Like, you know, like I said, get, get to the end of the day and put your head on the pillow and just don't have a drink. Um, did you, so this is something that I, again, like looking down the barrel of sobriety was quite anxious about. And that is like some of my friends at the time who, I mean, look, it was it was a while, it was long enough ago and in a different season of life. You know, I was in a new relationship. I just moved to Sydney for a really big radio job, like no mortgage, no children, just, you know, living my best life. Um, but I was worried that my friends who I was, you know, in cahoots with would really judge me and that I would end up losing those friendships. Now, on the flip side of the sobriety, I can say, the friendships just naturally fizzle out. But for somebody listening to this who is like, oh, my God, like what is this going to do to some of my relationships? Have you got any advice on how to manage that? Yeah, I think it's an interesting one because you're so right in every way. Like you do worry about it. You're like, but this makes me fun. Like I am actually super sexy and hilarious (laughs) when I've had a few drinks. Everybody would agree. Um, Everyone agrees. And then you do. You are, especially you. <laughs> and then you you also, depending on how long you've been drinking for, but you do form circles of drinking buddies. And a lot of them yeah. are excellent people who are such good value and they are also enablers. And you actually have to steer clear of those people because it's not very good for you. And, in fact, you're probably not very good for them. What I found, though, because I think I was a bit older than you when I quit, was that a lot of my friends um, had sort of either been through the ringer themselves in some sort of way or they'd had close friends that had. So none of them held any judgment about my sobriety. They didn't really care. They'd seen it all, you know. They're like, oh, yeah, another friend who's quit. That's that's really, really a common story and a common thing. So it was just sort of incorporated. Like, you know, you incorporate the friend who has to duck out for a ciggy, you incorporate the friend who who isn't smoking. But you do, I think you do change the context of your social interactions a lot. So nighttime is not such a thing for me. Um, uh, and it, yeah. and it's, it's sort of okay, but in, in other ways it can be a risk. And I, I think in those early days of quitting, the first two years, it's maybe something to consider before you jump in there because it's not a safe place for you. Maybe like, I mean, like going to gigs, going to bars, clubs, um, 40th birthday parties, that kind of thing um, can be a bit of a trigger. Um, And it can be a situation where you might feel that lure too strongly to resist. And I I think it's worth staying home if that's, if that's real. Um, Yeah, I, I agree with you. And like, you know, you've got to kind of do what works, but my advice is like, you don't have to be a superhero. You don't need to prove your sobriety by quitting drinking one day and then going and standing in a bar for six Mm. hours the next day to prove that you're sober. Like you don't, you know what I mean? Like you can just drop the superhero cape and just be really vulnerable, sit with those feelings and stay at home. 
and like nothing crazy ever happens at home. Well, <laughs> actually, depends depends on who you're with, I guess. Totally, and I did. But do you know what I mean? Yeah. As it look, as a mum, I did do a lot of drinking at home. So yeah. So if okay. that was a situation where um where I had to make sure that home was safe, so I cleared all the alcohol out of the house I gave a ton of it away yeah, wow. which was a great feeling but also like it was a bit of a you know it was a it was mixed because some I think we'd done well on a radio survey and my boss had gave, given me a bottle of fancy verve or something and I'd saved it and it was still in yes. its box and I was like I can't ha- I think it's better not in the house so I'm just going to give it to somebody who might want it and that was a really yeah. you know it was sort of bittersweet it was sort of great but also like let's keep let's keep me safe at home because I need I need this for me but back to the idea of socializing you know and how the friends drop off and the and then there's other things that come in I think one of the keys to success Mm. is not not replacing it with a new vice but finding Mm. joy in things that aren't centered around eating and drinking so going running is one of the things that I do I know you're mad for a bit of exercise I love exercise yeah so it's sort of like I think like it's drinking at this cup of endorphins, mm. you know, and you get to have it and it's like the best drug ever and there's no hangover yeah. after it. It's free, you know, everybody can enjoy it. I think that's a really good a really good perspective to go, this is actually like I am I am hot for this drug. I'm hot for this exercise yeah. stuff, you know. It makes me feel yeah. a million bucks and I'm not paying the, the next day. So just kind of starting to find a social group that you can go for walks or runs with and, and who you can be wholesome with. Yeah, I think exercise is definitely a huge one because you get that endorphin rush. Mm. Like there is that sort of payoff in a way um, that I think sometimes when you're drinking so much, you're chasing that high and you're chasing the feelings. And then the other one for me was I, so when I quit drinking, I, I was like, I'll just quit for a month and see how I go. And here we are nearly eight years later. But in that month, because I had so much time, because I I spent so much time drinking when I was drinking. Like I had a gold medal in drinking. <laughs> so I spent heaps of time at bars and like long lunches. So I wasn't doing those behaviors anymore. So I found I had all this vacuous time on my hands. So I started doing stuff that I'd always wanted to do. Like I Marie Kondoed the shit out of my house. Nice. I like went through all my cupboards, my wardrobe, all my things. And then I like... I started doing like a craft thing. I got this like mindfulness coloring in book because I just was like, I've always, I actually really love coloring in. Call me a three-year-old, but I love it. And and I feel like when you finish doing coloring in, you've done something and there's this sense of achievement <laughs> and validation. <laughs> and so I just started doing all this stuff that there was never room for when I was drinking. And in the month I was like, how much can I jam it in? Cause I'm really competitive. So like, how many things, how many new things can I try? And then from there, I found things that really worked for me that I've kind of kept, you know, doing or I keep cycling back to in my free time. <laughs> but there's, it's not because I know some people like exercise ew, or, you know, or some people just can't, you know, like I can't run anymore because my knees are dodgy. Mm. So for some people, you know, like that high intensity kind of stuff, isn't an option but there are other things that can make you feel really cool and kick ass it annoys me when people say that exercise isn't for them because I really strongly think it is it's just that they haven't found the thing that they they believe that though and you know Yumi if somebody tells you something that they believe is true you got to believe them that's true I know but every every human needs to move their body in some way 
don't they? They do. They do. And not not to the bar for more alcohol. <laughs> That's not the direction we're encouraging the movement. <laughs> Can I just tell you, I remember this one time, I think it's called Naked for Satan. It's a bar in Melbourne and it's up a bunch of... Yes, I've been there. Yeah, so I was buying a round of drinks for everyone and I knew I was completely smashed and I shouldn't buy a drink for myself. But the queue yes. was so long that I kept umming and ahhing. I was like, by the time I get to the front of the queue to buy drinks, I'll probably need one. So by the time yeah. I got to the front of the, of the queue. So logic <laughs> says buy the drink. Yes, it was so bad. So I bought everybody drinks, including myself, and then I remember the next day um, my then husband driving and I had to get him to pull over so I could yak by the side of the road. How bad is yeah. that? That is just atrocious yeah. that we think that that's you know that's how humans live their lives but do you know what Yumi that's that was my normal for so long like I and this is why I want to take the shame away and I think the you know when we share these stories of these moments that we've had that are just gross, gross. but you know what that's that's somebody getting free from the shame when they hear that and they're like oh I'm not the only person mm. you know what I mean and so it's like in in our most vulnerable place where we can go, hey, like this was, my life was a shit show, but look at this great thing that I've discovered called sobriety and this is how I'm doing it and this is how good it is. That's hope and inspiration for somebody else. And so for me, like, yeah, that story, not uncommon in the circles that I was, you know, existing in when I was in my drinking days. And I've got a hundred of those mm. stories. I've I've been in a hundred of those bar cues. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, you look back and you just go, <laughs> but then you go, if we didn't have that, then we didn't get here. And so, you know, like your drinking days have to, for some people, get gross enough that you decide to do something yeah. about it. It doesn't mean it has to be rock bottom, but, you know, just I know that feeling when you reflect and it's that gut. Gross. gross like oh what did I do what did I say what was I wearing <laughs> like I think my fashion sense got better when I got sober <laughs> as well I don't know what nobody's really ever talked about that let's unpack that in the next episode <laughs> so I started dressing less like a whore oh, like, you're allowed to dress there? like a whore a sober whore is a fine <laughs> fine thing look I think also you made an interesting point there when you said you don't have to hit rock bottom because I think that's a bit of a myth as well that's worth mentioning that Rock bottom is is a plateau sometimes. Like it's a long yeah, trench yeah. through which you walk and it's at some point you're like, I have to get out of this trench. It's not necessarily, you know, losing a limb in a car accident or, you know, or uh, cheating on somebody or having some horrendous experience that, that really tips you over the edge. It, for a lot of us, it's just deciding actually i got to stop this right now. In the movies, like if you look at leaving Las Vegas, you know, that's rock bottom. Like you're going to Vegas and you're just blowing it all up and you're vomiting in the gutter. Like that can be a rock bottom. But you know what? A rock bottom can just be not showing up as your best self for your kids. Mm. That for some people is rock bottom enough when you look at those beautiful little miracle faces and you realise I can do better for you so I'll do better for me. That can be a rock bottom moment. And sometimes this self-sabotage thing can kick in and it's like, well, I haven't hit rock bottom yet. And then you think you've hit rock bottom and then the bottom falls out of rock bottom and you can keep, you can keep going. Like there's more bottoms, you know. It's a false so, bottom. It's a false bottom. It's like a trap door. And so 
you know, I think we love labels, but I think when it comes to that sober curiosity, like it, it's your, everyone's story is as unique as their fingerprint. So it's like, these stories are not about comparison and like, well, this was, this was my worst night out. And what about yours? It's more just about, Hey, we've all felt those feelings and we're on the other side of them and we're sober and we're sitting with our feelings now and you can do it too. Mm. And so you don't, you don't have to wait for it to be the worst case scenario. Sobriety is free and available for every human being today. Like there's no, sit and wait in line it's just whenever any, everybody is ready to step up and do that because it is I'm gonna say it like I found it really hard it was not easy god damn it was worth yeah. it and now and now I don't even think about drinking yeah. now the I spend a lot of time talking about it but that's because I'm doing a podcast <laughs> do you think Maz so here's the thing and, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen more people go through trying and failing to get sober than I have but do you think that people have to, who are like you and I have to acknowledge that they can never drink again? So I have never said that I'm never going to drink again. Like when I stopped drinking, it was an experiment mm. and it, the experiment continues. And I've never categorically said I'm never going to drink again, but I'm probably not ever going to drink again. Same. <laughs> do you know what totally. I mean? So so I, I've never said never but it's because I know myself so well and I know that self-sabotage gene that my father passed down in his DNA. Thanks, Dad. And I know that if I say never, then things might start showing up in my life that will lead me to a place where I have to undo that never statement. Moderation is like this. It's like you were saying, like you you, you kind of just going to knee-jerk yourself in the face because if you are waiting for the day that you're so sober that you can go and have a drink, that's not living. That's deprivation. And so if you if you just take it off the table, you're never depriving yourself of a drink. So I think for I think to answer your question, it's more just about the mental game. For me, I ha- I've come to view alcohol as a form of um, plutonium. Like it's like a, a new, oh, wow. it's quite loaded, it's powerful, it's got a nuclear half-life, it radiates poison and if I put it in me, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expire. Like it's very toxic for me. So it's sort of like wow. completely off limits and I really find that helpful. Yep. It's just a, it's something I do not even, I don't, I'm not going to go and put poison in my mouth so I'm not going to go yep. and put alcohol in my mouth and, and for that reason I never consider it, it's never a consideration. I think when people think that they might be able to manage a semi-sober life, like I'll just learn how to moderate, I think that there are just some types who cannot and will not. Yeah. And there, and there are others who can and I've got great friends who can drink and have one glass and sit on that for hours and hours. I always yes. find it completely amazing. Um, yeah, what a gift. What, a, what an absolute weird skill. Why, why is it not? Why is your glass still half full? Doesn't make any sense to me. But there are many of us who are not that person, and we have to be realistic yeah. about it and and not gain, try and game that we will be that person because it's not happening. Yeah, look, it's a good point, and I think it really does come back to knowing yourself. And knowing what is going to, like, so you know that about you. You know that it is, it's poison, it's a no-go zone, like it's an absolute no. Mm. And so that's going to work for you. And, again, this is all about finding out what works for you. 
and making sure that it's your story, that you're owning it, that you're being accountable. So like for me, for example, I actually totally agree with how you view alcohol. I just haven't sort of said it like that. Um, but if you, if I if you had to say like, are you ever drinking again? The answer is no, not at all, never. Because now I've created a life that I absolutely love, and I would not, I would not gamble anything for this life. Not not in the slightest, not ever. Because life is so good now, and that doesn't mean that nothing shits happened in my life. That just means I have the ability to sit with it. Like I'm sitting in grief. My dad just passed away a few months ago, but I am grieving so sober and so hard for dad. And it feels awful, but beautiful because I'm, I'm feeling all of, and he would be proud of that, you know? And so it's not like you quit drinking and then all of a sudden magically your life is just going to be fabulous. No, your life will continue to blow up in your face continuously. But you have you have access to your you know your emotions and our emotions are the human experience and it's what connects us all together and you're tapping into that life force in a way. And if you could see Maz right now, you'd see how aglow she is. You look a million bucks. How dare you? Oh. <laughs> I've known you for like twenty years or something, and you look amazing. It is twenty years actually. One forty two. And so, wait, when did I, I started MTV at 24? Oh, my God. And you were already on Channel V. I remember watching your audition when you mapped on with Robbie Williams. <laughs> and I was like, I want to do that for a job. <laughs> I reckon I'd be good at that. Line them up. Line them up. I was like, how do you get, how did she get to do that? <laughs> what? You were my muse. <laughs> you had no idea. So good. I'm so sorry to hear about your dad. That's really, that must be so brutal. Yeah. Do you know what? It's like the, I've kind of experienced death in my life, but this one was like, this was a, this was really hard. It was really hard. But like I said, I'm, I'm really grateful that, I don't know. I've just been able to be really, really sad but I'm okay with that because I'm being sad and I'm sober and I'm not trying to drink away the grief and the complexities of the daddy daughter relationship. Like don't even get me started. It's like, it's a whole, it's a Pandora's box of stuff that we're sifting through. Right. (laughs) But I'm, I'm so happy to, to go through that and to journey through that sober. And I know that he would be proud of that. And, and it is, I hate to say it, but it's a part of life and, this grieving thing, man, I've done so much like grief work. And I think I was talking to a friend about this and we were, we kind of agreed that like grief is available because of love. And so if you, so grief is actually really beautiful and amazing and, and something that we should journey through with grace because grief only comes out of the biggest expression of love that you had. And so when you can sit with that, like I would not have had that revelation if I was drinking my feelings away when my dad passed away, but like I've really been able to journey with it and sit with it and feel it and unpack it. And I've arrived at this thing where I'm like, grief feels really awful. Like if I feel anguish and despair, 
But it's a beautiful gift because it expresses how much I just inherently loved the shit out of my dad. <laughs> it's so lovely. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Nick Cave talks about that in his Red Hand Files about losing one of his sons and how, oh, I know. And that the, the, the love Ugh. and grief are two parts of the same package, which he puts much more poetically yeah. than I just did. But, yeah, totally, totally <laughs> what you're saying. Version. And it's, it's lovely that you've, you've had that for your dad and you've had all those sober years Thanks. appreciating him as well. Totally, yes. And you just do, you get this... You just get this appreciation for life. And I just, I love that you've written so many goddamn books. I think that's just so cool because you, it's like you said it. It's like, how many books did you write up until sobriety? None. Yeah. (laughs) How many have you written now? Heaps. (laughs) Yeah, many more to come, but all of them really, I was really trying to tap into my most ethical side and my most honest Mm. side and give something to people who I need to trust me to, to be no bullshit so that was you know there was such a a real challenge and at at points in the writing process I did cry because I felt such a sense of responsibility to do a good job and that's I couldn't have done that while drinking that's amazing though like because that's your that's your soul work there you know your soul buggy that's your soul work when you're doing work that moves you um and it feels so good that's the point of us being here totally Oh, God, I love talking to you. <laughs> we should do a radio I was just going to say, somebody should put us on breakfast together or something. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Last Drinks Podcast. If you love this podcast, then subscribe. For more inspiration and to reach out, you can follow us on Instagram at Last Drinks Pod.